Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of series three of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast about athlete transition to life after sport. Today's guest is one of Australia's sporting legends, an Olympic champion and successful entrepreneur. Lydia Lassler is a dual Olympic medalist in the brutally tough sport of aerial skiing, who after the 2018 Winter Olympics became Australia's first female winter athlete to compete at five games, having started her sporting journey as a gymnast. Lydia overcame serious career-threatening injuries to win gold at the Vancouver 2010 Games, just Australia's fifth Winter Olympic champion. Now retired from elite sport, Lydia is living near the Arctic Circle in Finland with her husband Lowry and their two children where she juggles parenting with running two successful businesses in Body Ice and Zone by Lydia, both inspired by her journey as an elite athlete. Please enjoy my conversation with Lydia Lasilla. Hello, Lydia, and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast. It's terrific to see you. Now, before we get into the guts of this conversation, tell us a little about how life in Finland is at the moment. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, life is actually, I hate to say this, but really good over here in Finland. Um, it's wide open, <laughs> not to put any funds in, but yeah, everything's functioning normally. Kids are at school, playing sport. We're managing to run our online businesses from over here. It's fairly normal and ticking along and just enjoying autumn now and heading into another ski season. And was it a pretty easy decision for you guys to make to move from Melbourne, Australia, or down the coast, if you like, to Finland, a very different part of the world, but a part of the world that you're clearly very familiar with? Yeah, it's something that we've always wanted to do. So given the circumstances last year and, you know, obviously being in a beautiful part of the world as well, down in Lawn on the Great Ocean Road, we started to kind of contemplate maybe it's time when we couldn't kind of leave and couldn't visit Latte's parents and, you know, they're in their 70s now here in Finland and our children are their only grandchildren and we've always wanted to kind of come and do a stint of one or two years here. So we started to contemplate that idea when, you know, the lockdown situations were going on and decided that once we were kind of allowed to leave for a period of three months or more, we decided to come over for for a year um, just to be with Lowry's parents, but also give the kids an opportunity to live in Finland, go and be a part of the Finnish school system, the education system is one of the world's best. And I'm actually glad we've done it at the time it's been the best decision for us and our family and, and for the kids as well because they're you know at an age where they're not too old to be so overwhelmed by going to you know school in Finland in Finnish learning maths and, and everything in Finnish you know so they really settled in nicely it was the right time and adapted and we're really enjoying life here for now. That's terrific and it's great to see that you're in Finland. My father was the Finnish consul from Tasmania for a long period of time. So there is a, a bit of an affinity with that part of the world with our family. Now, let's talk a bit about 2018 Pyeongchang. At the Winter Olympics, which was your last Winter Olympics, you're quoted as saying the moment when you know it's over, it's over. Talk to me a little bit about how it was like and what you felt when you knew that you had competed for the last time. And do you think you were ready for life after sport when you actually finished competing? bitter for me because obviously not the result you know at all or the performance that I was capable of at that time you know I definitely backed down in the difficulty of skills and had been I guess preparing for my transition out of sport for probably eight years prior to that since I won gold in Vancouver so I was preparing to exit sport and I knew that Pyeongchang was going to be my last competition it was just one of those things um on the day, things just didn't align. 
straight after the competition, I got really, really sick. So something was brewing. I was just off. I didn't crush a single jump during training for the whole week until the two that counted, (laughs) you know. And what can you do in that situation? You have to – it hurts and it hurt and, you know, you get the movie replaying over and over in your mind of, oh, I just could have done this a little bit different and the jumps that I was doing were not difficult for me. But on the day when it counted, just couldn't do it, you know. So that's something you have to deal with and cope with the failures along with the successes in sport. And I was very aware of that. Is it a nice feeling? No. (laughs) Does it take time to heal? Yes. It's kind of like, you know, especially when you retire, you know, you're almost going through a bit of a grieving process because you're letting go of a person or a life or a chapter of your life that was pretty important and pretty intense and pretty full on. So I took my time doing that. I took my time saying goodbye to places that I would never probably visit again, to people that I wouldn't see for a really long time and to a lifestyle that I'd known for so long. And that meant that when I had decided it was enough and I was finished and you get to a point where you're just like, I'm tired. You know, it's interesting you talk about letting go there's a quote in your book one of the individuals who was interviewed in the book talks about six seconds every four years now that's brutal in fact for anyone who hasn't watched the will to fly or read the book i guarantee you should read the book first it's an amazing read and the pictures of the movie will provide some context around some of the things that lydia talks about in the book but talk about that on the day because Out of every Olympic sport that I can think of, there's not too many that are similar to aerial skiing where, you know, there are lots of factors that come into it with respect to wind, I suspect the snow and the the conditions that you're skiing onto the jump in. Talk a little bit about on the day and the fact that you can still do everything right, but other things can come into play that might impact your performance. There's so much that does come into play. And for me on the day, as I said, I felt something physically kind of brewing in terms of like, all right, let's just get through tomorrow. Let's just get through tomorrow. I was just tired. So physically something was brewing. On the day I was last on the start list and what happened was that my concentration over that, you know, four or five hours started to wane and I could feel myself not sharp. You know, you know when you know and you can try and fight it and sometimes it works, but on this case, it didn't. So there's some pretty important factors that can kind of make or break, you know, a performance and it's not always just the athlete. We have coaches that we rely on to call us in the air. We have wind and other variables to deal with. We have our top coaches that monitor winds up there and tell us where to start from or advise us where to start from. And to be honest, that team wasn't quite right. It was a different team to what I have in Sochi and in Vancouver. I was no longer working with Mish Roth, who was my number one best coach I've ever worked with. And so I joined the Swiss team and worked alongside him. And when I won a couple of medals, (laughs) he felt the heat because Switzerland weren't winning medals and said, you can't work with Lydia anymore. You can only be Team Switzerland. And so I had to kind of change up, you know, my coaching situation and rejoined the Aussie team situation. And I was probably a bit cocky saying, oh, 
I can work with any coach, really. Like, I've got the skills. I'm happy with anything, really. I want to work with Mish, but I can't, so whatever. Like, I'll be fine. But at the end of the day, that is probably what was a key difference in my performance, just having that trust, you know, and not having probably 100% trust there in that kind of coaching setup. If you think about you're you're a legend in winter sports and you're the most recognised and most successful Winter Olympian in Australian Winter Olympics history. Had you not won the gold medal, how would you feel about your career, do you think? I think like any athlete that falls short, you always will ask what more could I have done, you know, and it's these millimetres of, you know, one kilometre too fast, like in the case of Pyeongchang and it's over, you don't even make the finals, you know. So it's these little things that actually do add up your team, you know, the, the weather, your preparation, your energy, they all are so important and I appreciate the performances so much that I had when everything aligned. And that doesn't happen by chance. It happens by careful, detailed planning. In Vancouver, you know, that was certainly the case, that everything was super measured. I had a fantastic team. I was feeling well physically. I had overcome, you know, the disaster of the previous Olympics in Torino where I busted my knee. You know, there were so many things that I'd worked so hard to overcome and to conquer and to plan for, and things worked like clockwork. Similar in Sochi as well, coming away with another medal. So I appreciate the performances, the good ones that I've had so much and those shiny medals that sit in, you know, a case somewhere um, because they are really hard (laughs) to win and it doesn't always align when you've got three seconds in the air to have a performance of your life. So it's not easy and you throw in a couple of variables like fatigue and wrong dynamics and trust and whether, you know, things can go pear-shaped pretty easily. And just one last thing on jumping for a second. When you hit the ski jump, do you know when you hit it that there's going to be a problem when you land? Not always. For instance, if you've got a tailwind, you can't always feel being pushed from behind further down the hill. So that's why you really need the coaches to be on it there because they act as your eyes and they can see the trajectory in the air. And that's exactly what happened in Pyeongchang. I was a K a bit too fast with a tailwind and only, you know, 54 kilos. So I get really affected by the weather. So I need someone with really good eyes if I can't feel it at the time. So it's a mixture of things. It's a mixture of sometimes you hit a jump and go up, nailing it, and you know exactly what you're doing, where you are and how you're going to land but other times you need a little bit of guidance in the air and that's exactly what those coaches are there for. As you're going through your life in the Winter Olympics movement, if you like, talk to me a little bit about maybe the conversations you might have had with other athletes, whether it's other Aussie athletes or athletes from other countries, about what you all might do when you retire. Was there any conversations with fellow athletes about, well, you know, I'm starting to think about what, you know, life after sport. Did any of those conversations happen? And what were some of the conversations you may have had if they did? Do you know what? Those conversations are really rare. (laughs) You actually never talk about retirement when you're a current athlete, (laughs) I think. I don't say never, but when you're an athlete and you're right in the process of being an athlete, you're kind of focused on that. You have your own thoughts about retirement. 
certainly I did and I spoke to my teammates about you know the businesses that I was running and it was just kind of expected that that's what I would do you know after sport anyway and then some people that you don't know would be like oh well you'll coach or you'll go into media or you know whatever most people don't even know that I was running you know businesses um, from my laptop for over 10 years you know so it's a funny one because I, I didn't have many conversations with retired athletes about retirement after sport I didn't really have those conversations that I can really recall on or even have the guidance I guess um, from anyone that had retired or successfully retired you always knew what athletes were doing you know I, I looked at athletes like oh Gian Rooney you know she's a swimmer she's gone straight into media and doing a fantastic job there um, Michael Klim started up his own skincare company so there was great examples of athletes doing really wonderful things out of retirement and that's just how I saw myself you know transitioning too but not necessarily any mentors or conversations specifically about that you're also really aware of the unsuccessful retirement stories and transitions out of sport because you see athletes hit rock bottom, whether it's through, you know, substance abuse, alcohol, they've lost their way, lost their identity. Those stories were probably more pronounced. They're the ones you hear about. You didn't necessarily hear about the successful tr transitions because, I don't know, people don't seem to think success is newsworthy. And that's really the reason for this whole podcast is to actually get people like yourself and your peers to talk about their journeys through life after sport to hopefully help those that are still competing to understand what worked, what didn't, some of the things that they might have to do. And this really leads me, you mentioned you were running a business on your laptop for 10 years before most people even knew you were doing it or it existed. So let's talk about body ice for a second. We'll get to zone by Lydia in a little while, but talk about body ice because clearly the sport you competed in was brutal on your body. And if I recall in the book, you talked about the fact that you could not find an ice pack that could actually stay on the parts of your body you needed to in order to recover. So talk about what inspired you to come up with body ice. Well, certainly having to endure a lot of injuries myself, but I guess the tipping point was the Torino 2006 Olympics where I'd blown my knee out six months before the Olympics in a kind of freakish training accident and then... I had this radical surgery where um, instead of using my own tissue from my hamstring or quadricep tendon for the, for the new kind of ligament, they used a donor graft so that I could recover quicker and try and make it back for those during the Olympics. So it was a really up and down preparation, not ideal, obviously. But, you know, I wanted to try and get there. And so I did. I did one World Cup before those Olympics and won it. So I thought, all right, well, I'm back where I should be and should be okay from here. Then flew over to Italy and my knee blew up and I was icing constantly, like just 24-7 trying to keep the swelling down. But something was, you know, brewing inside and the, the graft wasn't coping with the load and um, knees just kind of swelled up and I could hardly walk. I don't know how I managed to jump. But um, second jump of the finals, you know, sitting in second place, looking good for the finals and just when my ski came in contact with the ground and the landing, just felt that familiar kind of snap <laughs> in my knee. And those Olympics were over for another four years. I can remember the video and the scream. It's quite an amazing thing to watch, not necessarily you getting injured, but the just the sport that you competed in. It's physical courage, no question, but it's mental courage. And you're getting, what, 25-odd feet in the air 
you know, going relatively quickly and a lot of things have got to go right to make sure you land and it can just nicely ski down the rest yeah. of the slope. Yeah, and it's not like other sports where you can go into the locker room and get a rub down or anything like that. You're actually physically standing up there in the cold all day. So when you've got an injury, a serious injury on top of that, you can't just take your ski gear off and ski boots off and get a rub down or get worked on, you know, like you've just got to go on. You've got to find that courage. You've got to find that will to go on and keep warm and do all those things. So, it's, yeah, it's it's a beautiful sport, but it's brutal um, in terms of the hits that you do take and knowingly, you know, you're going to take them, you know. Um, so it's, it's definitely full contact <laughs> with the ground <laughs> most of the time. I blew my knee out in Torino and I was sitting in the cafeteria in the athlete village with a couple of teammates and, you know, I was down in the dumps and, you know, pretty miserable and, had this shopping bag of ice kind of balancing. I had my leg up on a chair and a shopping bag of ice balancing on my knee. And I was in a puddle of water and leaking and slipping all over the place. And, and just in frustration, I picked it up and I just threw it. I threw it down. And, you know, I don't have much of a temper, but I was just fed up. Nothing was going right. And so someone should make a decent bloody ice pack that doesn't blink and slip all over the place. And um, everyone's just looking at me. <laughs> my light bulb just went off in my head. I'm like, ding, I'll do it. I didn't say it out loud, but I'm like, nah, yeah, I'm going to do that. So I flew home and um, I was sitting next to James Tompkins, who was a team attaché, um, chaperoned me home. So I got my journal out and I started sketching the first designs of what would be um, body ice, these, you know, joint-specific ice packs that just stay and you can wrap around and keep in place and they'll be cold and whatnot and you can target kind of any specific area that you need to without having to hold anything in place. So started sketching on the aeroplane. This is no joke. And I knew what I was in for in terms of the year ahead. I was in for multiple surgeries on my knee to get it right and a year off. That was my outlook and absolutely no guarantee of any return to sport, even though I swore that I would, but really there's none. And, you know, obviously people, after you've blown your knee out for the second time, you know, they started to also question me as well, you know, write me off as, yeah, she's done, <laughs> she won't be back. So you get that feeling and it's horrible because you were in, then you're out, <laughs> you know, and so... I got home and just got stuck into rehab. Obviously, I had the support of the Victorian Institute of Sport and the Federation in, in getting me healthy. Again, had the surgeries, multiple surgeries, but had this idea and started making some prototypes. Actually, it was um, a friend, Adrian Costa, who you know, who at the time was studying to be an architect. So I got him to draw up in AutoCAD my designs for me. And um, he was an you know, ex-noble skier, four-time Olympian as well. And so he did. So those were my designs that I then sent off to various manufacturers who I discovered were in China because no one would make my product in Australia. So I discovered the world of Alibaba at the time. This is, you know, 2006, so it's well known now, but it wasn't then. And it opened my eyes up to a world of, you know, offshore manufacturing. And so as soon as I was off crutches, I took my dad and my brother who were interested in going to have a look as well and we went off to China and went to a massive trade fair and met up with different suppliers and just opened our eyes to possibilities of manufacturing really and what China was capable of. It's just incredible. Got a bunch of samples back, chose the best one 
you know, and put an order in. And I had no plan on how I was going to sell it, who to. I had an idea. I thought, well, I'm sure there's a lot of people going through what I'm going through in that same frustration. So that was my basic guide. But I thought it would be more physios and sports teams and, and things like that. So got the container in, <laughs> spent, you know, whatever money I'd saved up, you know, as an athlete on the stock and just went all in. It just kind of typical style, I guess, for me. Like the product was good. I was really, it was satisfactory. There was a couple of little things that I got a little bit wrong in terms of labelling and just not checking some details, but otherwise really good. And um, was hobbling into my surgeon's office for an appointment and I had it strapped to my knee. The good thing about it was I could go from the gym, strap it on in the car, get to the surgeon, you know, drive home and ice and it was so easy. And so I walked in and he's like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, oh, well, this is body ice, this is my new business. It's, you know, custom joint ice packs that don't leak and slip all over the place. And he was like, oh, I'll order 500 of those. <laughs> right on. I'm like, oh, I just walked into my target market, <laughs> orthopedic surgeons. And that is exactly what happened. One order from him led to other orders from other surgeons and hospitals came on board and it kind of just grew without me actually doing any form of sales. Other than getting injured. Other than getting injured. So I turned around, you know, a really shitty situation into the best thing that, you know, it could have happened to me. I say that because it forced me to stop, forced me to take stock of life and discover other priorities outside of sport because that's the first time I actually had to think about what I was going to do if this didn't, if sport didn't work out. You know, I planned a wedding that year and got married and, um, you know, and started learning about business. So I'd done a sports science degree. I finished my degree in 2005 at Bachelor of Applied Science and then started just taking on through Open University a business degree. I didn't want to finish it, just wanted to learn about things that I didn't know. So I started taking on subjects that I was unsure about, sales and marketing, hate it. You know, still to this day it's like, oh, don't like it, don't enjoy it. And, you know, accounting and shipping, logistics, you know, learning all the inco terms and things like that. So it was a huge learning process and something I dove into. But orders started to come in and I was packing them. (laughs) Um, I was customer service. I was handling everything um, until it was time then for me that I'd rehabilitated and time to then go away and start training again and found someone else to pack orders. It was my (laughs) mum. And then it was my cousin. And do you think that your elite athlete background helped you just, A, obviously come up with the designs, but push on and just not, if you like, take no for an answer and, and not be worried about what might happen is the fact that you had a great idea, you came up with a very practical application because you were the prototype patient, if you like. You know, talk about how it's evolved and where is body ice now and then we'll talk a little bit about zone. It's funny because I think every good product, and, you know, this goes across the board, has to come from an authentic place and good intention, and that's exactly where Body Ice came from. I never once thought about making money. (laughs) It's weird, but I didn't think about that. I thought about filling a hole in the market. I thought about fulfilling a need that I had that I figured a lot of other people had. And I think when you start a business like that, it's a really good foundation for a good business. 
So my goal was to help people recover from their injuries, and it still is today. Body Ice has evolved. We have three different brands within that group. So Body Ice Recovery, which is our original sports recovery orthopedic kind of ice packs, who you know distributed through across the country, multiple hospital groups and surgeons and things like that, as well as obviously online and, and through other medical practitioners. We have Body Ice Woman range, which was born again out of my experience of having gone through childbirth and realising that there was a need for ice and heat packs for mums that have just, you know, endured childbirth when they're breastfeeding and things like that. So that evolved after I had Kai, built that brand, and then Kai, you know, my eldest, turned into a toddler and was bumping and hitting himself and all the time and needed that instant comfort and didn't like you know, my other ice packs, so I was scary. So I made the kids range. So that's body ice kids. So, you know, everything's kind of evolved out of a need and I think that's an important place to start a business. Yeah, there's no question. That's a great place to kick any business off from. What's your involvement now from the perspective of are you the CEO? Do you have other people sort of helping you run it? How does it sort of work now that it's evolved from the very early days back in 2006, 2007? We're now, you know, 15 odd years down the track. What does Body Ice look like from a, an organisational perspective? It's actually still remote because that's the way it had to be. So it was designed and engineered to be a remote setup. So I needed people to come on board, whether they were sales, marketing, graphic design. You know, we have obviously warehouse staff and things like that. I needed to keep the people that came on to be really independent, to be able to work in an online remote environment because I was off overseas all the time. Like day of Vancouver Olympics finals, I was in the ice bath processing orders and invoices there's no joke <laughs> and it was a good distraction to focus on outside of sport it's like you know playing a musical instrument or just having something else that interests you and that's what interests me business you know and running it and running a successful one so we operated and uh, remotely for many years so when you know times like these come and where people are forced to work remotely it was no big deal because the way we've rolled forever so as we needed new team members, we've just added them to the mix to help support the growth and expand into other territories and do more things. So it's gradually, naturally evolved. There's never been a hard and fast approach. I don't take very many risks. However, I'm not risk adverse. So I think that's what's helped me start businesses is that I was in a sport where I had to take risks every day, you know, and so naturally, I'm not risk adverse into starting my own business because I've never known anything different. I've never had a nine to five job. I wouldn't know that security or what it even feels like. So I think making that leap and deciding I'm going to do something is actually quite easy for me. But it's really hard for someone that's come from, you know, a secure paycheck and nine to five job. So I'm not risk adverse, but that's the way I've lived, you know, my life. But I measure risk constantly and I weigh it up and sometimes things work sometimes they don't but they're not big failures and things that I can recover from. Clearly every day you're learning as well when it comes to the different aspects of business and so forth which leads me to Zone by Lydia which essentially is was another invention if you like that came off the back of your athletic career and the fact that you were you needed to change the way you prepared your body as you evolved so talk a little bit about Zone. Zone you know was born out of my love for yoga and what it actually gave me as an athlete it's a gift and you'll see a lot of winter athletes and other athletes practicing yoga these days to keep their body in check especially as you mature as an athlete and that was certainly the case for me I had a really bad back injury at the time and 
my mental training coach recommended I go and see Duncan at Yoga Arts Academy as my last resort because the specialist said, we're going to have to send your nerves, um, nerve block here, nerve block there, you probably can't jump, that's it, done. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not the answer I was looking for. So I decided, well, what the hell am I going to lose, you know, by going to see this yoga master? I'd done a little bit of yoga, but not only as in a group setting, you know, classes and things like that hadn't really resonated with me. So I went to see Duncan. And within two sessions, my pain had significantly reduced, like unbelievably by about 50%. From going, not being able to drive over a speed hump to being like 50% better, which was a huge improvement. And I'm like, there's something in this. In two sessions, that's extraordinary. Yeah, so I started going at 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., five days a week, and going to see this one-on-one yoga master, Duncan. And he changed my life, (laughs) you know. He got me not only rehabilitated, but yoga then gave me other skills. It calmed me. I was less anxious about, you know, my future. I was, I could be present, you know, a lot easier. Anyway, I practiced yoga uh, with him one-on-one for about six months before I had to go overseas again, but then just kept on practicing and it became part of my routine. I couldn't actually jump or start my warm-up without doing my hour and a half of two hours of yoga. So I needed it and it felt good and it kept my body in check and it just became routine. So I fell in love with it and have continued, you know, to practice now doing my yoga teacher training and things like that. But Zone was born out of, it's a kind of a mixture of things. Knowing that there's a lot of crappy yoga products out there that are made from PVC and just toxic chemicals and it just kind of doesn't make sense because yoga is such a non-harming kind of... It's a natural activity, there's no question about that. It's ancient in practice and it's, yeah, so I wanted to bring in some natural, sustainable materials for yoga gear and, and there was just too much crap on the market. So the need for me was to, if I make natural, sustainable yoga gear, then that might just stop someone from buying the cheap $10 PVC one, you know. It's just no good. It's no good. It doesn't perform well and it's no good for the environment. So let's just stop the crap in the system. So that was one goal. The other goal was just after I retired, you know, I realised that, there's people that have never been in the zone before, you know, and then there's people that have in their own way. And as an athlete, I got to experience it all the time where you're just so tunnel-focused and so in this beautiful, magical place where things are flowing effortlessly and you've connected your mind and your body to what you need to do and then you execute it perfectly and it's just that's one of the best feelings ever. It's like when you're, you know, writing a book and you're so in it and words are flowing out or you give a presentation, you're like, you know, you're the boss. You're nailing it. Everything that comes out of you, the way you present, everything is working. You're in the zone, you know. And so whether it's a business meeting or a speaking presentation or you're in sport, we all have access to this beautiful place. So that's kind of what I wanted to encourage people to find with zone. You know, I think it's really important. And, I mean, you know, mindfulness is a very trendy word at the moment, but being able to zone in and being able to understand yourself and being able to have the awareness about yourself and your emotions and your thoughts is um, critical, I think, for everyone. It's a really good thing. One thing you mentioned a few minutes ago was the distraction of fulfilling orders whilst you were competing at the Olympics, which is just extraordinary to even think about that. But I want to talk to you a little bit about 
balance in elite sport and the fact that clearly you enjoyed the distraction of not having to think about your competing every second of the day, like some athletes do. And I understand that, you know, not every, it's not one size fits all when it comes to the way people should do things and it's what works for each individual. But talk to me about the importance of balance and about having other things in your life to take you away from the day-to-day grind of a sport as gruelling as aerial skiing was. Yeah, and at one point, you know, I was managing being an elite, full-time elite athlete because, let's face it, it's not a part-time gig, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was a full-time mum as well and competing and running a business. So I often think about what I took on back then and throw making a film in there, you know, prior to Sochi as well, which is pretty cool one as well. So I took on a lot and learned how to compartmentalise really well and that means to be able to focus on one thing at a time, to be able to shift your priorities around. It's kind of like, you know, if you can imagine a hot plate and you've got dinner on and all the five burners are burning and they're all the priorities of your life, you know, and if you put them all on high at once, you're going to burn dinner. You'll burn everything. You won't do anything very well. So I learned very quickly it's a matter of shuffling around your priorities, putting some on simmer, bringing some to the forefront, and you just keep doing the shuffle like a DJ, you know, and that's how I managed to do everything and do it successfully. So it meant that I needed a really good team that supported me with my family. So, you know, my husband Lowry came along or mother-in-law came along or my mum came along to help me look after the kids so that then I could go out and be the athlete and then I'd come back and I'd be mum and I would switch between these roles and try not to blend them. So by doing this for a period of time, by having other priorities in my life, gave me balance. And what that gave me was then this sense of security because I was running a business, I was making money outside of sport, so I had financial security and I knew that that would be there when I decided to retire. So that was already set in place, set in motion, set up. I had family, (laughs) kids, a husband that are also my priority. It's not fair to say that they're not as important as my sport or sport's more important than my family. They were all important to me, you know, but I mean family, you know, to have them there already before I retired meant that I just dropped the athlete persona (laughs) and moved into mum and business owner and wife. So how would you describe yourself now? A lot of athletes, when they retire, are still seen as the athlete as opposed to the businesswoman, the mother, the entrepreneur. How do you see yourself now? I see my life as being an athlete as a chapter that's closed. I've learned so much from it. Um, and it was a beautiful part of my life and a beautiful chapter and one that I'll treasure forever. Ever. But it's not necessarily me anymore. I bring the skills that I learnt through to other aspects in life, to business, to being able to mentor other athletes as well. But athletes can get in any professional. I mean, you even look at probably right now singers and entertainers who can't do their normal thing that they love you know, they would be going through an identity crisis as well. Who am I? What's my purpose here? And probably having to be forced to find something outside of that field 
that gives them some fulfillment. So for me, I've never got into the trap of identifying myself as Lydia, the Olympic champion or aerial skier. It's something that I've done and become and I am, but it's not all I am. It's not all part of me. And that's why I've been able to transition really successfully and be happy with the career that I had. It's not perfect, you know. There was definitely things that I could have done better, but it was pretty bloody good and I'm happy with that. And I did the best I could with the resources that I had and under my circumstances that I had. So I feel okay with parking that part of my life. It's where you start to identify yourself as being this only one thing that, you know, becomes troublesome. Now, this has been a brilliant conversation and I thank you so much for joining me. But there's one thing I always ask every guest and that's a very simple question around what would you tell your 20-year-old self about transition to life after sport if you knew then what you know now? I would certainly say that, you know, you are more than just this, this aerial skier and this athlete. You're going to be more than the athlete beyond sport because sport is a finite time in your life. If you're lucky, it's 10 years. I managed to get a good 20 out of it. But beyond that, there's life. There's life after sport, a long one, hopefully, you know, and for that, you need to have other interests. You need to develop yourself. So keep developing yourself, keep learning, keep upskilling, keep finding other things that you're interested in would be my advice. I think that's actually the perfect place to finish. That's great advice for athletes who are listening and will listen to this. It's all about planning. It's all about having other interests outside of sport and being prepared for a long, happy and fulfilling life. Lydia, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in and for the wonderful support my guests have provided. Their stories are unique, inspiring and powerful, and I'm sure people from all walks of life will take a myriad of learnings about transitioning to the next phase of their lives. Whether that be a professional athlete, a soldier, or perhaps someone who has decided they needed a change of career in order to find out what they were put on this earth to truly do. As in the words of Mark Twain, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. As the Wide Open Road has evolved, it has become even clearer to me the power of stories. And if you or a friend would like to share your story, please reach out to me at edward-kemp at bigpond.com. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I look forward to bringing you more inspiring and uplifting stories in two weeks' time.